all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. Donna Freitas is the author of Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention, which tells the story of a young woman's toxic relationship with her mentor, an acclaimed professor who was also a priest, and whose dark, stalking obsession altered her future forever. In this narrative, she uses her nightmarish experience to examine the ways in which we stigmatize, debate, and attempt to understand consent today. In Donna's haunting tale, she brings to light the most insidious kind of predator, one who isn't following the stalker guidebook, who never technically steps over the line you've drawn, who is seemingly acting with kindness, someone you're supposed to trust. Her story proves that stopping unwanted behavior is much more complicated than saying no. This is a version of the stalking story that needs to be heard, especially for people who instinctively feel they are being violated but aren't quite sure what to do. Donna writes both fiction and nonfiction and has lectured at nearly 200 colleges and universities about her research on college students. Over the years, she has served as a university professor and written for national newspapers and magazines, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the Boston Globe, and the Washington Post. She currently lives in Brooklyn. Okay, so could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal background? Sure. Okay, um, so I am a sometime professor, I guess you could say. I have a PhD in postmodern feminist philosophy of religion, actually. So, but that was my, that was my focus or my focus eventually. And, uh, I've been a gender studies person and, uh, a religious studies person for a long time in academia. And I also have done these big national sociological studies on college students in the last, like, 10, 15 years or so, that's uh, a lot of my academic work has gone in that direction. And um, I also am a longtime writer now. So I write all kinds of things. I write um, novels for children. So I have something like 12 novels for young adults and a couple middle grade novels. And I've written a lot of serious nonfiction based on my research. And um, I have a novel for adults coming out next year, and now I have this memoir. So I really am all over the map <laughs> in the kind mm-hmm. of things that I do. Wow, you've been very busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've cobbled together a kind of weird career, um, but I really like it. So what did, you mentioned, uh, before we jump into the, the memoir, uh, you mentioned this research that you've been doing for the past 15 years. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I... You know, I I didn't set out to do sociological work originally with my um, academic research. I was a total theory person, uh, but I am a I really love teaching, and I've always been a dedicated teacher and then professor. And uh, one of the things I started to notice um, with my own students was that they just had a lot of questions. It, in the beginning, the, their questions revolved around sex and meaning. And um, they felt like nobody was listening to them on there. It was regard to these questions or no one was really having the conversations they wanted to have uh, while they were in college about that topic. And so I ended up just deciding to launch like a major national study to like ask college students, what were they thinking about with regard to this issue? 
And uh, so I traveled all around the country and I asked all these students about sex on campus. And that research ended up really changing my academic life because it, it kind of it took over everything in a really good way. Um, but I think it made my research much more meaningful and relevant to um, to the college students that I really care about. So but that that one study led to other projects. And so now I've been doing that work for um, over well over a decade. Wow, that's exciting. Um, okay, so could you give us um, kind of an overview of the, the memoir? It, what is it? It's called Consent, is that correct? Yeah, Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention. <laughs> so it's basically the story of uh, what I lived during graduate school. Um, my original advisor, so the person who was the head of my um, program and um, my professor uh, over the course of a few years, like two and a half years, um, uh, became obsessed with me. I don't know how else to put it. And uh, I, it's about that, what I lived during that period and how long it took me to come forward to get help, why I felt so silenced for so long. Um, but it's also a reflection on that time in my life from where I sit now. And I mentioned earlier that I do all this research about college students, you know, including about sex on campus. And that research led me to become a person who talks about sexual assault, Title IX and sexual harassment on campus. And from that particular work that I've done in the last 10 years, um, you know, I began to think about a conver an another kind of conversation I could have about Title IX and consent uh, by shining a light on what I lived during graduate school. And then using the resources I have now and the knowledge I have now as, as um, someone who works on this as an academic um, to, to analyze that experience from my past. So it was kind of your research that inspired you to, to finally sort of go public and, and tell the story? Yeah. I mean, I never thought I would write about this. I, I kept the, this experience from my past a secret for many years for all sorts of reasons. Um, the people closest to me knew something had happened to me during graduate school. They, they you know, maybe knew the sort of basic contours of it, but they didn't really know how uh, extensive it was and how much it changed my life. And so I had really um, not spoken about it, but I began to realize as, you know, I've become this um, consent Title IX speaker on college campuses that, you know, this story shouldn't be secret anymore, that that I really came to a point in my life where it didn't make sense to stay silent. And in fact, I was in a position to, to really write about it in a unique way, in a way that most people wouldn't be able to because they're not like a consent speaker, you know, on college campuses, for example. And um, so that's part of what made me decide to do it. That and, you know, I... Um, I became this literary person. I became a writer, and I realized that I had 
the skills to tell the story in the way that it needed to be told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really valuable. Um, so since, since you've written this, have you met a lot of women who've had similar experiences? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, well, it just came out a couple of weeks ago. So I, I would say mm -hmm. that, you know, like in the couple months leading up to publication and then since I've gotten so many letters from women uh, who've read the memoir and who have, who have told their stories to me. And I've had friends actually who, after reading the memoir, it's provoked them to think back on experience that they've had and to name them in a way that they hadn't before. And so that's happened a lot actually. And uh, so far I've only done one in-person event. My, my publisher has been really, uh, I, I've been a little skittish about talking, doing a public event around it. So mm -hmm. for now um, it's mostly been over email. Yeah, uh, well, I'm sure, you know, as, as time goes on, there will be a lot more women coming forward. Um, I know it's it's very common for women to want to stay silent about this just because there's so much controversy and so much backlash that they face, which obviously is the opposite of, of what should happen. But um, I, I feel like your story is is kind of unique because it's, you know, it's not as overt as some other instances, which I think could really help a lot of women because sometimes you're in a situation and you're just if it's not explicitly, you know, wrong or inappropriate, then you're not really sure if what you're experiencing is just your own ideas about it or whether something is actually wrong. So I, I feel like that's a really important story to tell. I think uh, I, I said earlier that my, you know, my grad professor slash advisor became obsessed with me mm -hmm. and it's been interesting to apply that word to what happened. And I've only started doing that recently because other people who have read the memoir have used that word. And since they started using it, I, I realized like, oh yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> you know, that, that was obsession, wasn't it? And I think sometimes it's been really hard for me. No, a lot of times it's been really hard for me to name what happened because um, this professor was so, his behavior was so insidious and clever and he you know I it wasn't I mean I think he was in love with me he seemed to try to tell me that in different ways um but he also kept things very convoluted almost so that I could never quite figure out what he was doing and I was, I always had these seeds of doubt, like, is something wrong here? Or is he totally innocent? Is this, am I making a big deal over what is just some letters and phone calls? And um, he never got violent with me. And in some ways, um, I wrote in the book about how I, I used to fantasize about him becoming violent because it would finally give me something that would allow me to go to the police. And I think, um, because there was no violence, it was so hard for me to name what was happening. It took me forever. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've thought a lot about because of the work I do with college students and because of what happened to me and, and also the 
the conversations we're having now because of Me Too, you know, and, and culture, workplaces and universities are required now to have these conversations about consent and sexual harassment and you know, sexual assault. And one of the things that really frustrates me is how everybody wants to simplify the conversation. You know, everybody wants it to be about like, yes or no. Like we teach our workers, you know, like employees that like, if your boss like makes a sexual remark about you, then um, you need to come to human resources and report that as though, you know, as, as though these situations are very black and white. And in my experience, and especially since just the women I've talked to because of the memoir, but also all the conversations I've had with college students over the years, it's very rare that an experience is that black and white. And often it's much more subtle than that. And that makes it all the more difficult to come forward. So I, I really wish we would have more complicated conversations about these things in our culture. Yes, I agree. I think, I mean, you know, even at work, sometimes we'll have to watch these, you know, sexual harassment videos. You know, they're trying to educate us on what to look out for. But as you said, that when you're looking at something like that or you're receiving some sort of training about it or discussions, it's always very black and white. So when, you know, something inappropriate happens, it doesn't really match up with that. And so a lot of times you don't realize until later, sometimes even years later, that that something was wrong. And it is very hard to name. And I think because, you know, consent is is a lot more than just not saying no. And I feel like that's those are the discussions that, that need to be happened around how nuanced all of that is. Well, one of the things that drives me crazy is um, is the sort of HR tutorial on this stuff, because mm -hmm. I think they're worth about zero, you know, and every single campus where I lecture, you know, about this stuff and including my own campus where I teach, like we have to take these one hour long tutorials and I, they're just such a waste of money because they don't really, they don't help us do any of the thinking or have any of the conversations we, we really need to be having. And, you know, I, I think part of the, part of what's so hard and part of what we're not talking about is, you know, to give you an example of something in a, um, like at a university or even, you know, in the workplace, like we'll say things to our, like our college students, you know, if a, a professor makes an inappropriate remark to you, like you tell them no, and then you can make a report. And, and I, that completely, you know, misses the reality you know, that kind of like education misses the reality that, you know, to to expect a student, you know, who's very in a vul very vulnerable position in relation to a professor or to expect an employee who's very vulnerable in relation to their boss to somehow react to that person as though they're a peer, because that's what we're asking them to do. You know, if someone if a professor or if your boss makes an inappropriate remark or something that you makes you feel uncomfortable, you're supposed to then, you know, respond to them, not anymore as though they're a boss or a professor, but the, as though they're a peer, because you're supp supposed to somehow be able to be like, no, like that was inappropriate. And I just think that that's a really tall order, <laughs> you know, that, that's nearly impossible for someone 
you know, who's not in a position of power to do. And, you know, I think back to my own experience and, you know, like I was in this situation where this man held my life in his hands, like my, my entire future, everything that I wanted for myself, um, in, in my professional future. And suddenly I was supposed to respond to him and tell him no, as though he was some like jerky guy at a bar. And like, that was just a mountain I couldn't scale. Like, I just didn't know how to do it. It seemed impossible. Like the repercussions of actually telling him no, like I would some annoying guy at the bar. um, I just couldn't do it. And so I I think we're not really recognizing how a power differential can really silence someone who's vulnerable. Yes, definitely. I think that's Part of the reason so many women don't speak out is they just they don't feel safe doing so because they have so much to lose, whether it's, like you said, a boss or a professor or someone in a position of power. You are listening to WLRN. You mentioned Title IX a couple of times. So what um, what do you speak about on campuses in regards to Title IX? Well, just, I would, it's less that I speak about Title IX than I get to speak because of Title IX in the Mm -hmm. sense that uh, since 2011, because the Obama administration really put its foot down about how part of what Title IX requires universities to do is to do preventative education around sexual assault and harassment and um, also to, you know, adjudicate cases to take complaints seriously, all of these different things. Um, You know, colleges and universities, you know, I I guess I count as one of those um, speakers for colleges and universities. And so for better or worse, I help a university check off that box that they've done preventative education. And so I get invited a lot to speak on my research and my conversations related to this issue. And you know, I feel very divided about Title IX in the sense that Title IX is important because, and what Obama, the Obama administration did with regard to Title IX in 2011 is important because it forced universities to reckon with uh, sexual assault and harassment on campus in a way that they were refusing to before that. Mm-hmm. And it's forcing them to do preventative education uh, upon threat of losing federal funding. So the threat is is pretty tall. And, you know, this made universities finally sit up and pay attention to this issue. And, well, that, you know, Title IX and a bunch of national scandals forced them to. So, right. but, you know, so I think Title IX is important in the sense that it forces universities to reckon with this. But... I think what's problematic about Title IX is, um, you know, it, it really, the, the conversation becomes about Title IX instead of what we really need to have it be about, which is which is about changing culture, changing rape culture. Like, what does it mean to transform rape culture? And, you know, most of the conversations universities want to have now are very legalistic. They want to, they want to show compliance so they do not forfeit their federal funding. And, you know, so the reasons why we're having these conversations on campus, 
I would say are not so much virtuous as they are um, just to to show that you know to show that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say one of the things that I find really interesting about the conversations that are happening about Title IX at universities is that we're having them almost as though suddenly in 2011, Title IX also became about sexual assault and harassment when it was always about that. And in fact, um, a million years ago when I was in grad school, I made a Title IX complaint eventually. And I think about that all the time that, you know, if I made a Title IX complaint, you know, 20 some odd years ago, how many of us are there? You know, like how long have women been using Title IX to try to force their universities to contend with what they've been living on their campuses? So so anyway, I have complex feelings and a complex relationship to Title IX, um, but I think we need it because we need, you know, Title IX should be a last resort, ideally, and students need it so they have rights on campus in this regard. But I do wish that the reasons why we were having conversations, you know, prevention programming around consent and sexual assault were not so that we could secure our government funding and instead were because we really care about this issue. Yeah, and I think it's a, a lot of what I see surrounding the issue is when, you know, it's it's telling women how to prevent these things from happening as opposed to really going to the root of the issue, which is why are, are these things happening? Why is this so prevalent? And why has it taken us so long to even start really addressing it? Um, but I mean, hopefully, you know, since this is, it's still new the fact that, you know, universities are required to do this, hopefully, do you think over the next few years, maybe even few decades, the conversations will start to shift and start to go more in depth? I don't know. I mean, I was really, you know, what one of the re- terrible things, there's so many terrible things about the Trump administration, <laughs> but one of yes. the terrible ones, one of the many terrible things is how, you know, Betsy DeVos, who's the Secretary of Education, has essentially tried to roll back all of the all of the safeguards that the Obama administration put into place for victims of sexual assault and harassment on campus. And, you know, one of the things I worried about was, oh my gosh, like this woman and this administration is, is, uh, is going to undo everything that Obama, the Obama administration did. But that hasn't exactly happened. Um, and I think it's because um, too much, too many years passed between Obama and this administration uh, for colleges to go backwards in general, for, like for the most part. So too much programming, too many resources were already put into place by the time you know, Trump came into office and Betsy DeVos began to dismantle all of these requirements so that it would look so terrible uh, for universities to take them away that I think they couldn't do it. It would be scandalous for them to go backwards. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think right. it would be a public scandal. So, so in some ways, even though universities could go backwards, they haven't for the most part. However, um, I feel like the jury's out for me about whether or not things are going to move forward in any significant way beyond just those like 
sad HR tutorials that we require all of our students to do, as an example, um, or, or a one-hour education sec uh, session for first-year students. And I think it's because um, universities just don't want to deal with it. Like, I think that really, you know, if you want to enact cultural change, you know, sexual violence, sexual harassment, it's, you know, it's systemic. And for, for you to really deal with something that is systemic, you have to, you know, you have to really look at it on many different levels in a community. And I think universities really just want to keep checking off boxes. They don't, I don't see universities saying, okay, like we want to contend with this in a real way. We're going to put all these amazing minds, or at least some of our amazing minds on campus to work, trying to figure out what does it mean to tackle what is, you know, systemic sexual violence and discrimination within our own community and in our larger communities as a whole. So I'm waiting for that to happen. But yeah. so far, no. And I assume not all universities have the, the power or the resources to delve into it as, as much as maybe they would like or as much as is necessary. And I feel like also, you know, I mean, sexual violence, the proclivity for, for that kind of behavior starts so much younger than um, you know, the conditioning for it starts so much younger than, than mm -hmm. college level. So I feel like there's just, there's so many aspects of it. Um, obviously universities wouldn't be able to handle it all on their own, but um, hope, I, I try to remember progress isn't always linear. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. even if, even if it seems like we're, we're taking one step forward and two steps back, I, I try to, you know, tell myself that eventually things will start moving in a in a better direction, but hopefully. Yeah, I like that. I like that interpretation. Though I would just say, because I believe this is true, that I think universities have a special responsibility to tackle issues like the complex issues like systemic sexual violence and discrimination, things like racism, you know, which is also <laughs> systemic, and and that's because universities are such privileged institutions in our culture. They have some of the best minds in our country, you know, working on their campuses. They have some of the most extraordinary resources. You know, and I always tell my students, my university students, you have more resources at your fingertips than you will ever have again in your life, you know, at this university, because it is true. And I do think that universities have the resources partly because they have the minds on campus who literally, you know, what do PhDs do? They, they're, you know, universities are, are institutions that are supposed to be about tackling some of the most complex issues of our time and our world. And I think mm -hmm. it's a matter of communities deciding this is one of those complex issues we need to try to tackle. I don't think it's about money as much as it is about um, devoting time and resources that we already have. And by resources, I also mean human resources, not, not the department, I, the, the people on campus, the minds right. the university have, because I think that's where you're going to start to see change when there are faculty on campus all over the map, you know, at a university campus who decide and are empowered to by their school, you know, to to really tackle this issue uh, in a broad way. And and that's what I mean. Like, that's what I haven't seen yet. Like, I want to see that because we have all the resources to do that. It's just a matter of deciding that we're going to use those resources toward that end. Yeah, that is a very good point. Thank you.
Um, so what, you know, what advice would you give to women who find themselves in similar situations to you or as you were in, in grad school? Well, um, I would say, you know, know that you're not alone. Uh, and I would also say, you know, being alone in this is the worst possible thing. And I think finding the courage to tell someone is often the hardest possible thing. But if you can find that person you trust, and by I, that could be a, like, it probably should be a dear friend. I mean, like someone you really trust, not necessarily like official at your job or, you know, at your university, but someone who you truly trust in life to, to tell and to ask for help, then you're not alone in it anymore. And suddenly you have an advocate on your side. And I think even if there's just that one person who knows, it can change your life. I know it changed mine when I was going through this, finally telling someone who I could trust. And I would say, you know, one of the other things is just, this is gonna sound cheesy, but I also believe it. Uh, I really believe in the power of writing to transform our relationship to trauma, something traumatic. And I do know that, you know, one of the unexpected things for me about writing this memoir was how empowered it made me feel to suddenly be in control of my story again and to, to turn it into this literary work. And that process for me was, was one of the most empowering things I've ever done. And I've always believed in the power of writing to be transformative in that way, but it had never occurred to me to use my own writing skills toward, you know, the end of telling the story of what I lived in grad school. But until I, you know, and until I did it, um, I had no idea how much it was going to change my relationship to that part of my past. And I really do feel like it changed my relationship to that trauma in a significant and positive way. And I'm so grateful that I finally found the courage to do it. And so I would say, um, you know, even if it seems cheesy, you know, writing, writing down something for ourselves gives us power over it. And suddenly we can see where our power is in relation to it. And so I would say that, you know, turning to writing is also a really positive thing. Yes, I'm a writer as well, so I completely agree. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a, a novel. Obviously, you know, journaling is, is great, too. And just any kind of writing, I think, can be really transformative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are your uh, future writing plans? Do you have anything new that you're working on at the moment? Um, I have two things that are in the works that I'm really excited about. Um, one is, so I have my first novel for adults that's coming out. They're still trying to figure out when it's going to come out. It's either going to come out next fall or spring, and they're debating about when because of the election. All, all publishing houses are terrified of releasing books during the election next year. So uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at some point next year, it will be out, and I'm really excited about that. And it's called The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano, and it's 
based on another thorny issue in my life, which was the decision to have or not have children. Mm. And um, so it's about motherhood or, or the ways in which um, society sort of obsesses over women and motherhood and tries to tell them that they, if they don't have a baby, they'll ruin their lives. Thank you so much for talking with me. This has been a WLRN extended interview with author Donna Freitas. Thanks, Donna, for speaking with us and sharing your story. Women benefit from hearing each other's experiences and insights. Donna's book, Consent, A Memoir of Unwanted Attention, is available now through Little Brown and Company, wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening to this extended interview. If you like these interviews and want to continue hearing feminist content, consider making a donation to WLRN through our WordPress site. Or if you'd like the chance to interview impactful feminist women, volunteer with us at wlrnmedia.wordpress.com. 